I'm not going to lie. I was kind of just multitasking here. So not paying <laughs> super ton of attention. Oh God. <laughs> get her up, get her up, <laughs> get her a bubble I'm, bath. Oh, If you are not getting educated about current real estate market conditions, whether you're a real estate agent, you're in finance, mortgages, title, you're an attorney, you've got people that ask you for advice, you're doing yourself and your client base a disservice. This is the Knowledge Brokers Podcast. I'm Tom Tool. I'm here with Byron Lazine and Lisa Chinati. Apparently, Lisa has been plotting our deaths in a bubble bath with rubber duckies over the past 24 hours. So there should be a very interesting episode. We just found this out pre-show. And I, I want to lead off with something uh, that I found refreshing. I was prepping for the show over the past 24, 48 hours, and I saw the CEO of United Wholesale Mortgage. He's also the owner of the Phoenix Suns, Matt Ishbia. He was on a CNBC interview. And th those interviews, I mean, they're very quick hits. It's like four minutes. And it was refreshing in that he actually knew what he was talking about. There was no fear mongering. He called the market a strong market, that prices are going up, that there was no shot prices will be going down based on the alarmists that are out there. And he went on to say that rates are going to be where they are. They're going to bounce around between 6 and 7%, that when they do come down, the refinances that will happen will help a lot of people in the economy because they'll have more disposable income, and that will, in turn, ramp the economy up. Really refreshing take here. Is this surprising to you two that you have the largest lender in the country, their CEO, coming out and saying something that's totally accurate and inspires confidence in the housing market? Uh, before I get in, what I'll say is inspiring to me and should be inspiring to all knowledge brokers is that look at what's possible in the industry of real estate. You know, he, he's become the largest lender in America, you know, his company, CEO. Now his side hustle is owning the Phoenix Suns. And you're still going on CNBC talking about the mortgage and real estate industry while, you know, trading for Kevin Durant. Just unbelievable. But I didn't catch the, I didn't catch the full interview, Tom. So your take is that Ishbia is, really positive about the future, the next 24 months, because you can find plenty of doomers out there about the real estate industry. He, he's got a, a positive outlook and, and he's coming from the mortgage perspective. Remember, more, I, I believe mortgage professionals have been beat up more than real estate agents. And he's got a Without positive a outlook over the next 24 months. He said the market will strengthen over the next 12 to 24 months. And he was the most positive person I've heard speak about the housing market that's actually in it. And, and Byron, to your point, mortgage brokers, if we think it's been tough as real estate agents and team leaders and people helping folks buy and sell, mortgage brokers got it even worse because we have clients, right? We have people that want to buy or sell and they're losing out on inventory. They're fighting for those people that are losing out on inventory. So if you look at our addressable market is smaller. Theirs is even smaller because they're only competing for one side of the transaction, not two. And he said that very clearly, the next 12 to 24 months, the housing market will strengthen. Uh, he also addressed the spread on the 10-year and that currently it's at three, per, three points plus, where normally it fluctuates in the 1.75 range. So that he does envision rates coming down in the future, doesn't know when. 
He's hoping that this is the last Fed rate hike that's coming up because there's like a 97% probability on that CME market watch tool. So what he went over to me was, I felt like he's been watching the show. I think he's our number one listener. I mean, it was it was really in line with a lot of stuff we were talking about. And if you think we're in the know, this guy is the CEO of the largest lender in the country. So he's got real-time data. The spread with the 10-year and the 30-year, what's interesting is we we actually don't need the 10-year. We know that every time the 10-year comes down, the 30-year does come down. But we really don't need the 10-year to come down. We talked about this with George Ratu on the pod a couple months back, where you know we just need it to normalize that spread. And if it normalizes, the 30-year will naturally get down into the mid fives. You know, if you, and one of the things Logan Motoshami from Housing Wire mentioned was the, the you know, the 10 year, is, the spread rather between the 10 year and the 30 year is, is staying abnormal because of what happened with regional banks earlier in the year. So, so that's had, had a major impact. Um, Lisa, I know, I know you're getting close to the 500 transactions on the year and, you know, you got a, a dealing with a lot of lenders. What's your, from the Ishbia perspective, outlook on the market, um, and from a lender perspective, because I'm not sure, let us know in the comments, by the way, if you are a mortgage professional, um, you know, love to see how, how many uh, lenders are listening, but what's your perspective? Well, I think it's interesting, right? So to um, Tom's point with the addressable market, I think one of the things that um, not only are, are we do we have double the transaction sides, right? We have the buy side and the sell side. So they've always kind of started with a little bit lower. I think where the mortgage industry got slammed is that they lost all of their refi business for a period of time, right? And they were slinging probably 50% of their business was refis through 20, uh, 21 and 22. Those went away for a good chunk of time. I think one of the interesting things that kind of shook out, and I don't know if you guys have felt it, but when we do a lot of pay-per-click advertising for buyer leads, we've been finding that we've been seeing an increased cost on our pay-per-click advertising. Buyer leads are actually more expensive than seller leads through Google right now because we're competing with lenders who are trying to find those buyers at the same amount as we are, right? It's probably one of the first times in since I started tracking and I've been super deep in our pay-per-click data lately where buyer leads are costing me almost double what seller leads are costing me right now. Um, so that I, I think has caused mortgage folks to become a little bit more savvy about their marketing and their skill and their lead conversion, which is maybe a good thing for the industry and for consumers. One of the other interesting things that uh, came up this week is we had our first uh, refi from a transaction that was completed in December of 2022. The buyer just completed a refi, which I think will trigger the start of some additional refis coming up, mind you. So it wasn't that the rate was locked recently because rates are higher, but yeah. it was closed after a lock when rates dropped a bit. And I think the lenders are now kind of starting to see the potential for refi business to come back, which could be figuring into some of what they're saying with why they see some strength, um, not well, just in the housing market, but within their sector in general. I, I don't understand. I'm lost on how this refi, what was the reason for the refi? Well, so that buyer who closed in December of 2022 yeah. probably locked their rate, right? I could go back and suss it out, but they probably locked their rate back in 
October, November, depending on when it was, which is when we hit our high, right? Okay, like so we were above. Yeah, I mean, but November, the, the high in November was 737. So maybe they, and they could have had a higher rate. They could have, they could have been at seven and a half. Correct. Uh, I don't think they were that high, but there was a period of time. If you go back a couple of a couple of months now, there was a time when rates dropped to like six two five, right? And so, for those folks that bought with those high seven rates that were stuck in a spot where they had to buy, it's their first potential to start their first refis. Okay, so maybe they locked at six two five in right. May or you know, somewhere in there. Right. And it just takes the amount of time to get to the closing table to complete the close of that refi. Okay. Because yeah, Follow I mean, you need at least 1% spread minimum. Um, <clears throat> I think on a refi kind of like rule of thumb. So if they were close to seven and a half, which they could have been in, yep. in quarter four of last year, when we were sitting over six, seven and a quarter. And then if they got something Maybe, and maybe their personal situation, we, you know, we don't, we're not going to disclose, even if you know, Lisa, what their personal situation is, but maybe, no idea. maybe they're qualifying for a better rate and they were able to kind of, you know, get it down or they had some cash and they were able to buy down the rate on the refi. So I got you now. So, so they're, they're looking at maybe a 1% or even greater spread by working those moments in time. We haven't had that the last couple of weeks, obviously with rates Correct. being, rates being at 7%, but uh, I mean, to your point, Lisa, Mortgage Banker Association uh, did report that uh, I think refinances were up this week. I'll give you the, we did see applications increase. Um, and let's see, I thought refis did. Refis, refinances were, yeah, refinances were also up. Not a lot, but they were also up. So, um. That's interesting. I think it's a good sign, right? I think when those things come, it's, I think it's also helping just like real estate agents need to sometimes see the path forward. I think clearly the lenders need to see the path forward as well. They've been hammered harder than we have with the, you know, decrease in, in their business year over year. So I think some of the positivity could come from being able to see a path forward to, you know, they're not going to be huge opportunities at the moment, but I think that the opportunity exists. And sometimes we all just need a little glimmer of hope. This number is actually surprising. So refinance applications increased by more than 7%. And that activity for, for mortgage applications totaled, they say only 28% of applications. Um, but to me, I'm like, wow, refinances were almost 30% of all applications. Obviously it speaks to how low inventory is but that's kind of surprising that there's that much you know basically three out of ten applications are refinanced right now it's lower than normal times it's lower than normal times i get that mm -hmm. but i'm just like just think about this market and then think about that that three out of ten people calling a lender are saying hey i'm interested in a refi not a purchase you know you because you only 9% of outstanding mortgages are up over 6% right now, according to Morningstar. So they're refinancing for a reason. We, I mean, consumer debt is going up, um, although it, it is better than pre-pandemic. You know, it's going up right now, but it's better than pre-pandemic. So I don't know. Anyways, a lot, a, lot of, uh, a lot of numbers. Where do you want to take it next, Tom? Yeah, the other big takeaway from this interview, you hit on it briefly, Byron. We talked about the spread on the 10 and the 30. 
is that he's clear the banking crisis was an anomaly. And I think the tough part about this is I don't know how you prove that and how the market's going to be receptive to that. And that seems to be the driver for where rates are now. So how, how do you I'm, I'm curious what you guys think about this, because I, I tend to agree with them. I mean, it looks like it was you looked at the, the banking profile I, I of don't. those the banks I, that failed Silicon Valley. Um, I don't I think it's just fear in the market and there's no way to it's just going to be there for a while until banks don't fail. I don't I don't know what else to, to say about that. Um, and that's why he was really uncertain when rates will come down, because we it, it's it, it's a weird thing because you can you look at the banking profile. It makes sense. They're investing in like crypto and, and that sort of stuff. I, I think there, there's some fear in the market that's driving rates where they are right now, too. The, and that's why we haven't seen them the, come down to that normal. The spread. vulnerability on regional banks still persists. And until the Fed decides to start cutting the rate, that I don't think it's fear. I think it's a reality that the regional banks are in a vulnerable position because of the commercial loans, specifically on office buildings that they're holding. So, you know, if we keep this rate high and we don't allow, you know, some of these investors to refinance, we've got two and a half trillion dollars coming due over the next couple of years. If they can't refinance those loans with regional banks, at a, at a rate that makes sense for their numbers. Because remember, you're not going to fight the trend of vacancies increasing. Th this culture that we're now in of, you know, working in the office three days a week or working from home as much as possible is not going away. And so you're, you're going to see bigger companies and bigger organizations say, I need less and less space, or I'm just not willing to re-up my lease at, the old, at yesterday's rate. I need a I need a, a rate that makes more sense for where my business currently is at. And so they're getting hit on that end with the leases. They're going to get hit on uh, the refinances. The rates have to be lower uh, to help support not only a commercial real estate specific office building crisis, but that couples with, to me, a regional bank crisis because they're so connected. So the Fed's got a tough balancing act while they're fighting inflation they got to get these rates lower to help regional banks. And that's my biggest concern with regional. If you want to be the knowledge broker in your marketplace, you need BAMX. It is a curated community of on-demand courses like the world-renowned Tom Tool, me, the best objection handler in the country, showing you how to handle seller and buyer objections on a consistent basis. Canva courses, how to design your own marketing so you can appeal to people on social media through email and look like a professional and you get a private community with other like-minded folks like you that want to make their business better. Use the code knowledge brokers for 10% off. Get BAM X now, do yourself a favor and go outwork and out educate your competition. Well said. I mean, I, you know, I know personally, like we've, uh, we've got some investment properties throughout the, throughout the country and they're, they're commercial loans, right? When you lend buy, you know, borrow in an LLC, they're commercial loans and the rates have gone up substantially. And these banks aren't willing to really, you're talking about going from like a four and a half to like an eight on some of these rates. And they're, they're, they, they can't do anything. I mean, they go to their banking committee, banking committee says tough shit, basically, this is where the rates are. And it's typically like a five-year adjustable on those things. That, that's, a, that's a really valid point. Byron. Tom, how many, how many units do you own? in You're in Kentucky, I think, with your investments, right? We've got 23 doors in Kentucky. Uh, my partner's got another six or seven on top of so that. So are you, do you need a refinance right now? 
So we were looking for, I mean, we don't need to refinance. Um, I mean, the, the rates have gone up. We were looking for some stability and we're dealing with a regional bank down uh -huh. there. And I think that's uh -huh. where a lot of folks, when you want a commercial loan, you're not going to United Wholesale Mortgage. You're not going to Chase. You're going to these, you're, to your point, regional banks. They're the only ones that are willing to lend on those LLC profiles. And the regional bank feels, what, what's their temperature on your apartments? Um, they're, they're fine locking in a rate where rates are today. Like that's not the issue. It's just that, that, you know, they usually price these things prime plus one with a five-year lock. So we bought them four five, six years ago, right? You're at four and a half percent. Now it's like 8%. You know, th there's a big jump there. And, and why, why, business, why were you so looking at a refinance just to pull money out? Money we weren't looking at a refinance. We were looking okay. at trying to negotiate with them. So exactly what you're talking about, Byron. Like, Hey, we've got. X amount of loans. Yeah, yeah. Do. How can we how can we all win and protect ourselves? Our agent referred you who <laughs> sends a ton of business to you for mortgages. You guys know Jay Pitts down in Louisville. So it's it's the same kind of thing. And and it's you know, the, the there there isn't a lot of give there, unfortunately. And the banks you do have to go to the have some give. It's, I'm well, not going to name any names here, well, but it's funny. We talk about this because we, we there was one that was open to it, but their deposit profile was pretty weak. And the conversation was, well, if the bank folds, it's not like they have your money. They just got your debt. So it's a little bit of a different situation. Yeah, until the Fed is going to cut rates, the banks are in a tough spot. And that's why you ha have this, um, you know, limited capital out there. They're very scared to deploy capital right now. Lisa, I mean, you've got 12 homes in Boston. What's your, what's your take? <laughs> I am... Um... I don't know. I'm not going to lie. I was kind of just multitasking here. So not paying <laughs> super ton of attention. Oh, God. <laughs> get her up. Get her up. Get her a bubble I, bath. Oh, uh, not. A, yeah. Well, yes, but not in the office. Uh, <laughs> I, I prefer the fuzzy bunny feet. Thank you very much. Um, uh, no. Anyway, nothing to add to this part. Let's move on. All right, let's move on. Let's move on. Le so Le here's where we're going to go next, because I, I found this pretty fascinating as well when we were prepping for the show, is we've got uh, the guest we are pursuing, Logan Motoshami from Housing Wire. He came out and reiterated that we're in this unhealthy market. And, and for the knowledge brokers out there, I know he's putting a lot of great stuff out. I would not call the housing market savagely unhealthy. Just remove that from your vocabulary. That's what he says. And the, the reason he calls it that is because days on market are still in the teens with home prices rising. And that was his fear that there's too many people chasing too few homes. We've gone over this narrative before. And at the same time, the, the growth of uh, rate of pricing has cooled a little bit, even though it's still rising with 7% rates. And here's the interesting thing. And this, I think, tell, tells the tale here. Year to date, we've seen if you take all, every, he, he charts things weekly. Um, we've had 14 positive purchase, purchase application data points and 13 negative purchase application data points. And to me, what that says is that this is a slugfest for the rest of 2023, where the brokers that are out there, the people that want to continue to grow their business with the limited Tom, amount of. No, like, your internet, your internet just went psycho mode. That, that was the most yeah. frustrating. Yeah. All right. Totally. Let let Lisa let Lisa 
let Lisa react. I don't know if we're going to be able to save that audio. I think maybe we will in the after. Yeah, we will. All right, let, let, let Lisa react. So uh, I get where Tom was going, um, the you know data around it. It's, I think, tying back to where does inventory stand? Days on market are still in the teens is what I hear Tom having said, right? And being able to understand, is that actually savagely unhealthy? Is it, maybe are you trying to say, is that balancing out to the new normal? Um, but when you look at the data points, I, I think I heard 14 were positive, 13 were negative. Is that where you were going with it? And, yeah, that's the weekly purchase application trend. Okay. So with that, right, it doesn't seem, it, that would almost imply to me that it's a maybe kind of balanced market. It's a good mix of you know, kind of both and an interesting take on it to say savagely unhealthy. Um, again, I tend to agree. I think it's important to understand also one of the things that we keep talking about so much is the differences that happen from the macro market across the entire country and then being able to break it down and understand what's happening in each of the micro markets. What's happening in your local market and how does that play into the messaging in your own market. And that's a big part of what we're talking about with our consumers and our agents every single day. Yeah, savagely unhealthy. It's a great attention grab. It's a headline. It's a, exactly. It's a brilliant hook. It's worked, uh, you know, for Logan on his CNBC appearances. Uh, you know, CNBC can roll with the headline. And I love it. it it's great. It's savagely unhealthy for first-time home buyers because they're going up against, in their price point, if they're looking at affordable pricing in, in most areas of the country, they're going up against 20 plus off offers oftentimes. So that's yep. not healthy. We, you know, for, we don't want to see for the next decade, 20 plus offers on every affordable home. That means we haven't solved the inventory problem. It means we haven't produced enough affordable inventory to meet the demand. Okay. What, where it's not savagely unhealthy, where it's actually quite healthy is homeowners. You know, if you own a home, if you didn't listen to these idiots in 2020 that told you there was some big cliff coming not to buy a house, then you're really pleased with the equity you've gained. Before the, uh, right before March 2020, NARS median uh, existing home sale price was like 275000 June just hit the second highest month, NAR reported this week, in the history of every month on planet Earth. At four hundred, what was it? It was four hundred and ten thousand dollars. It's crazy. Yeah, the north, the northeast is uh, the northeast and the Midwest are both up year over year, according to NAR. The northeast being the highest, up almost five percent, four point nine percent on median sales price for existing homes. So we're not talking about new construction here for for existing homes. Okay. Um, yeah. but June of this year is the second highest month ever recorded June of last year being the highest. And then May of last year of 22 now, now taking third place, uh, w with June of this just past June, just past it. Right. So if you're a homeowner, it's been very healthy for you. Well, th there's another layer to this too. He constantly focuses on days on market. Uh, the reality is the market moves a heck of a lot faster than it did five or 10 years ago. I mean, you, you look at how, how fast people want to move. I mean, 10, 12 years ago, I didn't have electronic signature software. Like, let's like put this into perspective. I mean, it, so that's so true. See, but I mean, like meet people in the office. So, and 
the way the world works today is we do things faster, quicker, more efficiently. And th that's been a, just, a, just a change in the market in general. So, you know, we know that we've actually talked about it on the show here. When you see a home that's been on the market like a week, that's kind of the new 30 days, right? Remember, it used to be 30 days. And if it's not sold in 30 days, you had to make a price adjustment. That's what I was taught in 2000, 2001, yeah. 2002. Well, yeah. now it's like a week. And it's based on number of showings. You're getting more showings in a shorter period of time because the information's out there. Photography and video are better. People can buy homes because of technology without being there. And that, that's another factor here that never gets talked about. So I, I don't want to, and we, we know there's there's supply and demand issues. I don't want to discount that. But 17 days, I mean, I think homeowners prefer to sell their homes quickly. Than I agree with you. Them. I think you're making a great point about the future of the transaction. When you start to think about how AI is going to change the business, would you imagine in that world that days on market are longer or lower? I think when you put AI into how we're doing transactions and, and the way the transaction process from the mortgage perspective, from the brokerage perspective, from the consumer perspective, it should lower the days under contract. It should lower the days on market. So we might be just going into, you know, a decade of a new normal on how we look at days I on market. I love this take on it. I, I think, I, I think there's something to that. Now, there, if we don't get more inventory in the affordable sector, that is still going to remain unhealthy, you know, so despite what, what anything happens, but yeah. Um, all right. We want to do that brokerage topic you had. Yeah, well, so we got two, two, two other things to cover here, um, and and you tell me which way you want to go. Bright MLS came out. Oh, we got that too. Oh, yeah. From Lisa's MLS pin. I know she's a BFFs with those people up there. Uh, but in all seriousness, Bright MLS, second largest MLS in the country. I'm a member of it. They, I got an email from them this week and said, "Hey, instead of requiring compensation being listed at, at the buyer brokerage co-op fee, which for the record you could list it as a dollar, so I don't see this being that big of a difference personally." Now it's not required to put a home into the MLS, which is clearly a reaction to the MLS pin settlement that happened last week. Uh, and, you know, what, what they came out and said, uh, uh, it was a Bright spokesperson issued a statement. We don't believe this will impact Bright's relationship with NAR. NAR does not charter or otherwise approve or have direct relationships with any MLSs, including Bright. And Bright is free to make independent business decisions responsive to the needs of our subscribers and the consumers that they serve. I mean, this is an all-time reactionary move. Lisa, you promised you were going to do some digging on the MLS pin decision up in Massachusetts. So what do you know about that settlement last week? And are we going to see more of this from other larger MLSs around the country? Uh, so I did not do enough digging. I do believe, though, we're going to start to see a lot of trickle down. Um, I it, it, Clearly, the, the decision from MLS pin was protectionary, right? Um, and I think trying to get ahead of things is sometimes an option that companies, individuals, whatever it is that you want to classify this as take in order to protect themselves. My gut says that one of the best ways that the MLSs are going to be able to insulate themselves from any future stuff is to start to change this. I think I said this before the show, I don't think it's actually really a change to your point. MLS pin, I think most of the MLSs out there have always said you could offer a dollar for compensation. Um, I, I think if I go back, I think we're starting to see some of it trickle down. I'd seen it in the suburbs for a bit. 
I think we're starting to see them in the city markets where comp isn't coming out, but I think it's going to stick with the discount brokers, right? And I think that this is maybe a way to open that up a little bit more um, for discount brokers to come in and be able to put on different marketing plays. I don't know that it's going to have massive impact today, tomorrow, next week, next month, but I think it's something everybody needs to be aware of. I think it's going to be across the country very soon. I think every MLS is going to have to come up with some sort of form like this. The interesting part, you know what I was thinking about this morning? I was um, on Zillow. IDX feeds a while ago were required to start posting out what the buyer agency commission is. So if you log on to Zillow or any of the other uh, IDX feeds now, you see where it says what the buyer agency commission is. And I think it'll be interesting to see if that starts to impact consumer sentiment when they start to see that there is no buyer agency commission offered. Do you do you think 100% of listings should have buyer uh, compensation listed? Well... So here's my here's my feelings on it. I, I am a fierce advocate of buyer agency in general. I think that our country worked very hard to bring buyer agency here. I think that it serves a very large purpose. And those that I think about are our first time buyers, kind of the ones that are getting beat up the most by the market right now. And I, I think about those buyers that are buying with three and a half percent down, who are, have saved and pinched every penny to cover their down payment and their closing costs and their moving costs. And I think what we're doing is we're impacting that segment of the population the most and putting them into a situation where they're going to, unfortunately, be buying homes that they maybe shouldn't be buying for various reasons, right? Not necessarily because of agents that are, you know, all agents, but there are going to be some. I was half joking, but not joking yesterday when I was talking to somebody and I said, the downside to this is that when that buyer who cannot afford representation walks into a listing and they do the home inspection because they've negotiated directly with the seller's agent whose fiduciary responsibility is to the seller and not to the buyer. And I don't care what anyone says, dual agency is bad business. You can give me all the nasty comments you want about that. But I don't think that anybody can adequately represent both parties' interests in a transaction. And so that buyer is going to be there working directly with the seller's agent whose fiduciary responsibility is to the seller. Home inspector is going to uncover a structural issue that we all know isn't good. A horizontal crack in a foundation, a insert whatever. And that seller's agent is going to say, don't worry about it. It's common. And that that buyer is not going to have any advice. They're not going to get the advice from somebody who's representing their best interests. And that's where I think we're going to start to have some of the biggest issues. They're not going to get advice about negotiation, home inspection, pricing, um, services. It, it, it fires me up. Okay. Anyway. I mean, I generally agree with everything that you said, but you didn't answer the question. Do you think that that disclosure of buyer commission should be on websites or not. Oh, I didn't know that. I didn't miss the question. I'm so fired up about all this. Yeah, and I, and I agree I with everything you said, that? but. Um, yeah. I do. I think it should be disclosed. I don't know. I have mixed feelings about that too. Right. I mean, I do think that there's a level of transparency that that gives. Right. But when we're looking at it, it what I don't know is, is it actually going to impact the seller negatively 
if all of a sudden now the consumers see that there's no buyer agency commission, I, I, I don't really know what consumer psychology is going to be around that. Does, does the consumer look at that and say, now I'm going to get a better deal versus the listing next to it that has buyer agency commission offered? I'm not sure. Um, I don't know. I, I, it's going to be an interesting one. I've got something on this because I'm clear that, you know, from just dealing in the marketplace, right, there, there's, a, there's a couple of different types of consumers out there. There's some consumers that people that tend to use these discount brokerages yep. or yep. like a Redfin with a rebate or things like that. They tend to focus on the money versus the transaction outcome. Yep. And yep. what I, I'm a big believer in and we preach this at our team, we live by it is, hey, my job as a buyer agent is to get you the house and get you in the door for the home that you want. Some people don't see it that way. And that maybe isn't the right kind of client that's going to, uh, like they see that uh, buyer agency compensation, Byron, the folks that see the zero, I mean, we've all gotten these calls. Hey, I'm looking for the listing agent. Yep. I only want to yep. talk to the listing agent. Those people tend to almost sabotage themselves. This is, this is, uh, and I've seen it time and time again, where they focus on the money being paid rather than how am I getting the house? And they tend to be the ones that look longer, lose out on properties and don't understand how to get the home. Then there's the other consumer that wants someone in their corner. And there's always going to be a market for that. It's no different when you hire an attorney or you do your taxes and you hire an accountant. It's the same sort of service. So, you know, I, I, I think it's going to attract the same people to get attracted to discount brokerages. I don't th I think that's going to be the same sort of consumer that's there. And I've seen people use these companies on listings of mine where it's a Redfin agent. I remember this vividly. It's a multiple offer or it's a, it's a new listing. Um, it's on the top of this very steep hill. This home has like a 45 degree angle on the driveway. We have no offers in the home been on the market three weeks. This is back in 2020. And they just made an offer above the asking price for no reason. I didn't even get a phone call. And that was a Redfin agent. That's kind of the same thing because they think, oh, the market's competitive. We got to get aggressive. They cost themselves money in that transaction just by not communicating and knowing what to do. I think that's going to be what happens to folks when they see that zero buyer agency. At the same time, I don't think there's much of a difference between one and zero. I mean, a dollar and zero, it's it's well, it's whatever. I mean, these well, there's always people playing in the gray. So I don't know that it's going to make much of an impact for the consumer that actually wants representation. Yeah, well, I don't think it's... Go ahead, Byron. No, I was just going to say the MLS change on Bright from going from a dollar to zero dollars means absolutely nothing. Uh, it, what matters is what we were talking about where... You know, not every IDX public site has, has to put it on. They've, you know, they've made it where they have to make it available for the inputter to say, I want it to show or not. And so, you know, if, if it goes 100% on all public, Rich Barton, he tweeted it this week. He loves saying this line, you know, Zillow's DNA and Rich Barton, of course, CEO of Zillow, Zillow's DNA is to turn the light on. Uh, the industry. And so this is the kind of stuff that, you know, would be considered turning the light on showing every single detail of everything for, uh, for the public. We, we live in an era of transparency right now. I mean, in, internally, I mean, we all run teams, the more transparent, the better, in my view, I, I don't, I don't have a problem with it. I think the knowledge brokers, I love to hear this in the comments here, the knowledge brokers that are out there, they're going to know how to deal with this. And they're going to know how to show their value. We talked about this last week. This is about 
hey, I, I get you could do this on your own. I mean, you can represent yourself in court on your own. You can do your own taxes, right? You might get audited. You might lose the case, but you can do this on your own. Here's how I can help yep. you. And if yep. you really can guide people through a process and, and show that value prop, we were talking about it on one of our accountability calls with just, just understanding how to go list properties, right? I mean, this is, this is a skill to be developed and it's going to transition perfectly into our next topic because there's a lot of order takers in the business right now that don't know how to do that. They're like, oh, I'm getting paid no matter what. I just got to show them the house. And that's the mentality that's going to have to change. And that's probably why we see so much movement around the industry this year. 58%. That's the uh, number. Where did that, that number curious. come from? 58% of what did what? I want to be clear on that. Uh, so I uh, was texting with a friend, Chris, from Humanize, uh, uh, owner of Humanize. And we were having a conversation about what agent churn has looked like in the market so far this year and um, or turnover in general. And 58% was the number that he gave me. Let me pull up the exact context of what that churn, either out. meaning out of the business or or to a different or moving company, 60 per six out of 10 agents. Yeah. That seems so, high to me, but. Uh, brokerage brokerages turnover at 58% annually on average. Okay. That no makes, data that makes sense. If it includes people dropping out of the business. Well, of course it does. Okay, right. Yeah. But, um, but that's a big number. <laughs> it's I think it's number. actually bigger than average. And I think from my perspective, what I'm seeing, and I've been living in recruiting this year, um, love, hate relationship with recruiting. Um, <laughs> exactly. And it's interesting because historically we would normally see a lot of agents kind of moving in October, November, December, January, maybe even into February. But once we started getting beyond that, there was generally enough pending business where agents were a little bit hesitant to move. I'm finding that that's not necessarily the case this year. One of the interesting trends that I'm noticing, and I'm not sure if you two are noticing it, is that agents are actually willing to move with pending transactions. They'll agree to a move while they have pending transactions, but to move afterwards because they're not feeling confident enough in their pipeline and that they're going to continue having pending transactions to put or transactions to put into pending status. And they're feeling a little bit more anxious about that lack of a pipeline. Um, I suspect my gut says that when we get to give it another six weeks again, once uh, Labor Day passes, I think we're going to see really, really high agent movement come September, October, November. It's I think it's going to be Go ahead. It's hard in the summer because people are distracted. And I agree with you later in the year as the, as the fourth quarter starts to sink in. I mean, we're, we're experiencing one of the lowest years for transactions, still plenty of transactions out there. Okay. But just based off of what we experienced the last couple of years, it's a much lower number on transactions. That number gets lower in quarter four and quarter one, and they're going to, yep. they're going to feel it even more. Thousand Watt did a survey the week of May 29th, and they surveyed 416 agents. That may sound like a small sample size, but uh, every agent had completed at least six transactions in 2022. And Thousand Watts community is of a higher level knowledge broker. Okay, the the, the people that are following and engaging 
on thousand watts email list are, are pretty sophisticated. Okay. And, and it was a variety of brokerages, a local, regional, or independent brokerage made up about 38%. Uh, the highest brokerage after that was over 13% Century 21, um, about 9% KW, ERA 8%, Cobalt Banker 7.5, Sotheby 6.5, other 6.7, Remax 4%, Compass 3.5, and, and then EXP about 2%. So it was like a variety of agents, which is good. And the number here for um, basically you know, did you switch brokerages? Um, and, and it goes into a whole bunch of details. I want to get your thoughts on, on this. Okay. So have you changed brokerages in the last two years? The number was 32.2% said yes. So that doesn't take into account that churn that, that you're talking about, Lisa, the 58% of dropping out of the business. These are people who stayed in the business, who are still in the business, who have been in the business. In fact, 56% of respondents were in the business four to 10 years. And so think about that. A lot of these 56% in four to 10 years, 14% in 10 to 15%, and then more than 15 years, 19%. So only 10% of this list was in zero to three years. And you still had one out of three agents in the last two years move brokerages. Um, the top reason for changing brokerages, this might surprise you. What do you think? What do you guys think the top reason was? Leadership. Now, better marketing support. See this and hear this all the time. Well, can I just, are we talking, is lead gen one of those things or are they counting lead gen as marketing support? It was better split comp plan was um, the lowest at 5.22%. Okay. Better training, 5.22%. Um, better technology was 25%. Better leadership okay. culture was 20, 25, 26%. And then better marketing support. So lead generation, not on the list. Um, specifically, I, I would have liked that to have been a category as opposed because when I think of marketing support, I don't think of true lead gen, but, right. but, but maybe that's where that's getting a little convoluted. I think that that would, yeah, might be muddy because I think of marketing support differently just because I categorize it as two different things within Same. my business on the PNL. Right. But I'm not sure that uh, all agents necessarily do. That's but I am point. seeing in my in my conversations with folks, right? And one of the the things that's easiest for me to talk about with agents is: Are you just needing more opportunities, right? If your sphere is locked, if you're of my age, right? And don't smirk, Tom Tool. Um, I'm laughing about the more opportunities question, uh, not your uh, age. Okay, fine. Um, but if Oh, gosh, you're salty. <laughs> yes. It's a beach. Um, <laughs> yes. Hot water, Lisa. Uh, uh, I think you need the bubble bath. Yeah, Relax. I think so, Tom. That'll, that'll, that'll never happen. So just keep, keep just drinking. grab a, grab a, what do you like? The white claws. You'll be fine. I, I, I'm uh, having coffee and water today. Anyway, go uh, ahead. Lisa. Anyway, so. Like the agents that have had decreasing production because they worked heavily from their sphere. If you're in like that category where your sphere is those move up buyers, it's locked, right? And if you haven't been able to 
buy into programs like Zillow, if you haven't developed a pipeline of things like first time buyers through Google or whatever, you're struggling because of a lack of opportunities because you didn't market yourself well enough up until that point or diverse enough. How about that diverse enough marketing of yourself up until this point? Mm. That, that's a great point. I mean, I went through the same thing in 2008 when the market crashed. All my business was my sphere and I had to make decisions on where do I, where do I have? And it was, it was more about prospecting and outbound calling and activities. I, but in general, most agents, they want to work by referral. And a lot of that, to Byron's point, they, they want marketing to do it. They don't want to deal with the hand-to-hand combat of phone calls, text messages, videos, the stuff that makes the marketing even more effective. Right. So I, right. I tend to think that survey was probably grouping that in, even though I disagree with that strategy. It sounds like we all do. Uh, that's pretty fascinating. But uh, let's face What do agents want to do, though? I think this is a great observation. We, we've talked about this at some of these conferences we go to together and everything else. They want to talk about the marketing, the fun stuff, and maybe not the lead generation. So I could see if you have a strong marketing department there, they might go there, have it available, but never use it, which tends to be what happens with most realtors anyway. That makes sense. Uh, Lisa. All right, I got to... Oh, what? You got to oh. bounce, but I don't think Tom's coming, but you're coming in August to Tom Ferry Summit, right? I will be at Tom Ferry Summit. What do you consider this the uh, the Super Bowl of real estate events every year? Oh, Super Bowl. Yeah. And Tom is sitting on the sidelines for the Super Bowl. Womp, Tom Tool sitting on the sidelines, not Tom Ferry, of course, because it's. I'm going to be very honest with you about why I'm sitting on the sidelines is we've got work to do in our business. And I, I had this conversation with Tom yesterday. So, <laughs> defensive so, again? Yep. Tom, no, I'm not defensive, Tom, but I Tom, think it's, I, I want to be really, for the people listening, this is important. Like it, it, to go to the conferences and have these ideas and do all this stuff. Sometimes you got to pull back and do the stuff that's going to move your business forward. I and actually agree. I, I, could, I could go to the conference. I'd be fine. What's the best thing for me to do for the business, whether you're an individual, you're on a team, you're a team leader, whatever. Sometimes it's to keep your head down and keep your KPIs every day, which I'll be doing as soon as we get done recording this. So everyone thinks it's all rainbows and, and things are going great sometimes when you see us on these podcasts and we're doing this video. We've got some work to do well, right now. And that's what I'm if, focusing well, on. Very If you're not salty like Tom and you want to be in Dallas and work on your business August 22nd to the 24th, like Lisa and I then hit the link below for the Tom Ferry Summit, P-R-B-A-M-S-S. -S. One of the most psychotic discount codes. It's the lowest price on the internet, by the way, for the Tom Ferry Summit. I did not come up with that uh, code. That was Tom Ferry, P-R-B-A-M-S-S. -S. So P-R-B-A-M-S-S. -S. We asked for BAM, and uh, that's what we got back, P-R-B-A-M-S-S. -S. So that's what you have to punch in if you want 100 bucks off your code. Lisa and I will be there. Tom Tool will not be there, but come hang out with Lisa and I. Yeah, I'm going to do some uh, breakfast masterminding around uh, listing generation and conversion because that's where my my the fire in my belly is all around listings right now. So I'm going to, you know, anyone who wants to meet up, grab breakfast, grab coffee. I typically tell people at these conferences, I have two breakfasts. I have East Coast breakfast and West Coast breakfast and can bang out twice the amount of conversations. Uh, I don't eat the East Coast breakfast and the West Coast breakfast, but I partake in the time zones. Bubble bath, Lisa Chinati will be a kale smoothie be... later, and then you'd have like 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 bacon and eggs for the East Coast. Right? It'd, be, it'd be very different meals. Bubble bath, Chinati right. will be banging out breakfasts in Dallas. So join so us. So something there. like that. All right, see yeah. you guys. Thank you.